Hello and thank you so much for joining us here at Quarto Kids Cast. I'm your host Mel Shewitt, and today I'm joined by best-selling author and rewilding pioneer Isabella Tree. Then we've also got to, I think, get a, get a bit more untidy, get get a bit rougher around the edges in our gardens. When We Went Wild is a heartwarming, sustainably printed picture book about the benefits of letting nature take the lead, inspired by Isabella Tree's real-life rewilding projects. In addition, When We Went Wild is printed on 100% post-consumer recycled paper and locally in the U.S. using renewable energy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Isabella Tree, the author of When We Went Wild. Hi, I'm Isabella Tree, and I'm the author of When We Went Wild. Issy, I'm so excited to talk to you today about When We Went Wild, and I have a million questions about this book, but I feel like before we talk about the book, I would love for you to talk about what it means to go wild and maybe share some of what you do at NEP. Well, what it's like to go wild. Um, We began this adventure, I suppose, kind of not really understanding what we were letting ourselves in for. Uh, My husband and I inherited this estate from his grandparents in the 1980s. And it had always been an intensive, modern, arable and dairy farm. And we worked at it for 17 years, or rather my husband did, he was the farmer, uh, before realizing that we could, whatever we did, we were never gonna make any headway on this land. We're on very heavy clay, very marginal land. So it was never going to be productive in a way that was going to make us a profit. And we had a one and a half million pound overdraft by the time we reached 1999. My word. And that's when, yeah, that's when Charlie, my husband said, look, we we just can't go on like this. Um, He couldn't see an end to it. And we realized that we had to do something dramatically different with our land to work with it rather than battling against it all the time. And so Charlie made the brave decision, I think, to give up farming. It was brave because it went very much against his family's DNA. They'd been farmers for decades and decades. It went very much against the kind of cultural sort of feeling of the time, which was still a hangover from the Second World War, really, that every inch of land had to be under the plough for producing crops. And we were really, once we decided to give up farming and we'd sold our farm machinery, sold our wonderful three dairy herds, sold our milk quota, cleared our debts, it was the most amazing feeling because suddenly we were free of this burden of trying to make the land do something that it really wasn't cut out for. And that also freed up our heads. It gave us the headspace to think creatively and imaginatively about what we could and should be doing with the land instead. And it also opened our minds to listening to other people. And one of them was this amazing Dutch ecologist, Franz Vera, whose theories had been put into print in English in the year 2000, the very year that we had our farm farm machinery sale. And his book, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, was was very um, influential for us because what Franz was saying was that in all our imaginings about what our landscape would have looked like before human impact, we've completely forgotten about the enormous numbers and species of megafauna that would have been on our planet, that would have been driving our landscapes, creating habitats. And it's largely because of the loss of them 
that we have lost biodiversity so desperately. Um, and so what France is saying essentially is that if you want to recover biodiversity, and this was something I think that both Charlie and I felt very intrigued by, that we could perhaps do something for nature on our land. If you want to recover biodiversity, then a way to do that in a very dynamic way, which is very different from conventional conservation, is to put free roaming animals into the system and allow them to be the drivers and let them do the disturbing, the rootling, the trampling, the, the trashing of vegetation, opening up all these opportunities for other species. They're really keystone species in themselves. They're sort of, they're, they're the sort of dynamism that starts kickstarting natural processes again. So it was really an experiment to see if this could be done, if we could improve biodiversity on our very depleted post-agricultural land in West Sussex, in the busiest, most populated part of Britain, in a way that would really contribute to biodiversity. And what's happened has been beyond astonishment. Um, the results have been so extraordinary the quantities of wildlife that have just poured back into this land as habitat has, has responded and, and evolved, but also the rarity of them. We've got some of the rarest species in Britain now on our land, uh, species like nightingales, purple emperor butterflies, peregrine falcons, lesser spotted woodpeckers. We've got turtle doves, which are one of the birds that are most likely to go extinct from Britain in the next 10 years, although they were plentiful when I was young in the 1960s. So suddenly we've gone from being this patch of depleted, unremarkable land for, in terms of nature to being one of the most important sites for nature in the UK in less than 20 years. It's been absolutely astonishing. It is absolutely incredible. And people can visit NEP, correct? And walk around and experience? Yes, we, we, have, we have about 20 miles of um, foot, public footpaths on the estate. So people are free to come and, and walk those footpaths whenever they like. Um, but we also, um, off the back of the rewilding project, and again, it was something we'd never anticipated, hadn't planned for, um, we have started an ecotourism business. So it's really inspired by Charlie's childhood growing up in Africa. Um, you know, we, 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 ironically, we used to travel the ends of the earth when we were young to look at fantastic wildlife and never really thought about what we we could be having in our own backyard. And suddenly when you see these incredible species coming back and really there's nothing more exotic or beautiful than, than a kingfisher. Um, you know, why, why not have safaris where you can show British people and increasingly foreigners um, what British wildlife is about? So we have these open-sided safari vehicles that we take people around. We, we take people on walking safaris. Um, at the moment, the Dawn Chorus safaris, which set off at about five o'clock if you're brave enough, um, are astounding. You can go out there and stand in the scrub and the bird song is so loud. It, you literally feel it vibrating in your stomach. And we also have tents um, and a small glamping site. So we've got tree house, a couple of tree houses and shepherd's huts and some yurts. So very intimate still. So you feel like you're not overwhelmed by other people, but you still can get that connection with nature. And if you feel like being conversational and sociable, you can interact and chat with other people about what they've seen. And, you know, it's a, it's a lovely, lovely atmosphere. So that for us has 
now become a really significant income stream. Um, and one of the one of the income streams that we now have that is making this estate profitable. Whereas, you know, before we were just looking into the the black hole of despond. So eloquently put. And I feel like now you have a sequel when we went glamping. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you have written, you're, you're an author. So you've written a few books. You've written Wilding, which did very, very well. Can you talk about what it was like for you sort of mentally to shift toward a younger audience? Well, it, it, it was... It was nothing but fun, I have to say, and 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 that's partly due to Quarto um, and the wonderful Georgia, because uh, you know my editor, because she just made it so much fun. Um, I think I've always, you know, I mean, as a child, I mean, from you know the age of dot, I've always loved books, and I learned to read. I was lucky enough to be able to read at a very early age, so you know, reading has just been part of my life. And I loved reading to our children when they were small. And so the, you know, the storytelling aspect, I think, um, you know, just came quite naturally, I suppose, it was something I wanted to do. We, we've also been increasingly having so much feedback from rewilding what we're doing here. And a lot of people saying, I just love to tell my children about this, you know, are you going to do a children's book? So it was the perfect lockdown project yeah um, and uh, it, it obviously the story had to be simplified um for children because you know it was complicated the stages of of entering into rewilding at NEP we weren't brave enough to do it all in one go to commit all three and a half thousand acres to rewilding instantly um it happened in stages there were lots of other people involved there were we have an advisory board of 20 different scientists who who helped shape how we were going to do it, when we were going to take the plunge, when we were going to introduce which animals, that kind of thing. Um, but there's lots of rewilding projects now happening in the UK. This wasn't the, the same 20 years ago, but now there really are lots of them kicking off. And many of them are quite small and small holdings, particularly in the uplands. And so I wanted to really use that as a model and have just a couple who um, you know, husband and wife or partners who children would be able to easily identify with. And then a story that just shows one of the benefits of rewilding and one of the unexpected benefits that, you know, often I think people are a little bit nervous and fearful of rewilding. And certainly in the beginning here, we had a lot of criticism from neighbours. And I think that's still the case. Most people are a little bit you know, raised eyebrows about, you know, letting land just go. And so I wanted this story to reflect the nervousness of other people nearby watching on as a couple make this decision to rewild, but then how they are persuaded by one of the outcomes that actually benefits them. So what challenges would you say you encountered when writing this book? And I would love to know what also surprised you the most. Um, I think one of the challenges was, um, well, I think actually one of the, it was a challenge and a surprise really, was, was the, the very fact of illustrating children's books. I hadn't really appreciated it before, but oh, yeah. um, uh, all the children's books that talk about farming, um, and even now, when you look at them now, they have this very nostalgic 
sort of mythical idea of what a farm is. So, you know, there's a, a, a couple with a lovely hay barn and hay ricks and pitchforks and there's a, a couple of cows and a happy pig and chickens in the yard. And it's very idyllic. Completely. Um, you know, nobody farms like that anymore, unless you're a smallholder in Romania or somewhere. Um, you know, where we get our food from is massive industrial scale farming. And, and you don't get any genuine reflection of that in children's books. So it was quite interesting having that discussion with the illustrator, who I love. I think her illustrations are fantastic, Alirati. Um, and I love the way she gets expressions into the animals too, the unhappy <laughs> cows and then the happy cows. It's just brilliant. Um, but it was quite interesting saying, you know, no, we've, the, the yard has got to be really mucky, you know, and that milking parlour is, you know, it's a kind of industrial unit. It, it, it's kind of got steel and noise and you know it's not pretty uh and so it's quite interesting trying to trying to get that reflected in the illustrations it's nice that you got a chance to work with Elira so closely and give her that input yeah she was brilliant I mean I've never actually spoken to her directly we've only kind of communicated by email and I'd love to meet her one day um but uh I think she did a really wonderful job and and also, you know, there's um, the idea of a, of a village, you know, you, you think about how, what a village looks like. And again, often it's prettified, you know, and it's, um, it, it's not like that in reality, you know, not that many people have a lovely burgeoning front lawn. Most of the houses around here have you know, tarmacked over their front lawn so they've got extra space for their car. Oh. So how do you, you know, so it was quite interesting trying the before and after picture of the of the village, before and after the, the neighbours came round to rewilding and how to rewild the village was interesting too. Looking for free downloadables to add to your lesson plans? Quarto Kids offers a wealth of teacher guides, activity kits, and educational materials to supplement everything kids are learning, no matter the age range, subject matter, or setting. Check out our downloadable resource at quartoknows.com forward slash r forward slash educator resources. That's Q-U-A-R-T-O-K-N-O-W-S dot com forward slash r forward slash educator resources. You and I spoke when we were talking about this book at its very inception, and we were talking about how there are so many myths out there. Can you talk about what next steps people can take, but can you also bust a couple of myths for us? Because I think there's a lot of wrong information about there, about how you can help your land. People just assume that if you get a packet of seeds and you plant it, that will help. Yes, it's it's so interesting, isn't it? Because we think of our gardens as being very natural spaces, um, but actually we're so dominated by the sort of industry of commercial garden centers and nurseries. So a lot of what we do in our garden, even if we're doing it with the best intentions, isn't good for nature at all. Um, obviously we should be going chemical free. Um, there is absolutely no good for nature if you are pouring chemicals on your on your land so 
there's this whole um, sort of myth, I think, that has grown up about what is a native species? What is a weed? Um, you know, we often call native plants weeds because we just don't want them where they are. Um, we don't look at them. We look at them with a kind of horticultural eye and we think that they're not big and blousy and, you know, what, what you would, might find in the Chelsea Flower Show. So what good is a daisy or a dandelion? And actually um, incredibly good for pollinating insects. Um, I know in America, there's also a lot of fear about um, invasive species, but, you know, if you look at what those are and what they actually do, very few of them actually cause the amount of harm that they're cut out to do. And so I think we have to be much more expansive and generous about, first of all, the kind of species we're going to have in our gardens and to think about, are they good for pollinating insects? Are they good for birds? Are we going to leave the seed heads on so that the birds can feed from those seeds or are we gonna keep tidying up all the time? Um, are we going to be a sort of um, purist about our lawns? Are we going to want only grass on it or are we gonna allow wildflowers to come back? Are we going to perhaps mow less frequently? Um, are we gonna allow ourselves to get a bit untidy and let a kind of, brambly, thorny, briary patch develop in a corner that we don't mind too much about so that that is cover for birds. I think we must always ask, ask the question, why are we going to a garden centre to buy what we do? Why are we going to a garden centre to buy a bird box when birds naturally nest in trees and shrubs? You know, why isn't there enough cover in our garden itself to allow birds to nest where they would rather nest? Um, and then if you're thinking just simply about what plants you buy, there's something absolutely iniquitous going on in the UK at the moment. There are plants being sold in garden centres with labels on them saying bee friendly, you know, bee double E, you know, in, pollinating insect friendly plants. And these plants and these are these are actually um, certified by the Royal Horticultural Society. You can't get much grander than that. Hmm. And these plants are actually propagated using pesticides. Oh. So they still contain pesticides when, they, when you put them in the ground in your garden, expecting to attract pollinators. And all that happens is that the pollinators poison themselves when they come to those plants. So what you're actually creating is an ecological sink. You're attracting insects in only to kill them. It, it's astonishing what we end up doing in our gardens that when we, we think we're doing the right thing and we're, we're tidying up our leaves all the time, you know, with our leaf blowers, our carbon using leaf blowers, when actually the leaves are fertilizer for the soil. Um, you know, if we have a lovely big heap of leaves, that again will become wonderful habitat for small mammals or hedgehog or, or even for grass snakes. So, um, you know, we've, We've got, to, we've got to stop using chemicals as much as possible or entirely. Try not to buy in plants, beg, steal, borrow from your neighbours. You know, there's lots of things we have here now called seedy Sundays where people swap plants and exchange seeds and that's all organic and, and doesn't involve, you know, merchandising at all. And then we've also got to, I think, get a, get a bit more untidy. Get, get a bit rougher around the edges in our gardens. And I know that's very difficult to do because I think the peer pressure from neighbours, if you're on the street, can be very, very difficult to live with. 
But a friend of mine has invented a brilliant, it's a brilliant idea, I think. Um, it's called the, the Blue Heart and it's how to rewild your garden. So he's it's got a lovely website with some ideas. But if you are doing that and your, your lawn has become very shaggy and you're letting your brambles grow out and you've got weeds popping up here and there, you put a stake in the middle of your lawn with a blue heart on it. And that tells your neighbors that you're not being lazy and irresponsible, <laughs> that you're actually, this is what you're, you're intentionally providing habitat for species. And then what you hope, of course, is that the neighbors catch on, they stick a blue heart in their lawn or their garden. And then sooner or later, the person who stands out as the odd one out is the one in the street that doesn't have a blue heart and has the perfectly mown lawn. So it's, it's all about changing a mindset, I think. That is fantastic. And it's such a great way, again, to, I mean, just like the book sort of brings together this community, it's a great way to bring your community together and to sort of raise awareness. Yes, and I think that's another point about rewilding is, is the real importance of connectivity. So not looking at your patch of land or, or even your window box in isolation, but looking at it as the stepping stone or even if possible, a corridor that wildlife can use. So I have another friend who has a garden, a back garden in Bristol, and he is a wildlife um, cameraman. And so he knows his ecology very well. Um, and he's created fantastic habitat in this very small back garden space. And last time he counted, he had 25 grass snakes in, in his backyard, which was Ooh, amazing. Boy. He's got incredible <laughs> butterflies. He's got a beetle bank. It's incredible. But what he's done, which I think is even more interesting, is he's persuaded his neighbours in that street to do the same thing. So they've got a rough patch of grass that they don't mow. They've got untidy patches. One has a pond, another has a sand bank, another has a beetle bank. And then he's persuaded them to cut a hole in their fences or their hedge to allow hedgehogs and small mammals passage through that, through that street. So now that whole back street of gardens is a nature corridor. Now, if you can connect that nature corridor with say a railway embankment or a canal or a river, you can get nature coming all the way from the countryside into those back gardens. And, uh, and I think urban situations can be part of that too. We can still get that flow of movement in and out of cities. And of course, this is all gonna become much, much more important as the temperatures rise with global warming. At the moment, we're looking in the UK with current rises in temperature, with our, our sort of weather conditions that we have in Sussex at the moment, moving five kilometers north every year. So by the year 2050, the situation in Sussex now will be up near Scotland and we will have the south of France. So if the species living here at net now aren't able to move in response to that temperature climb, that, that climate change, they're doomed to fail. And not all species can move like birds or flying insects um, to find um, you know, another, another island of nature somewhere. Um, they, they're gonna find it very difficult to traverse hostile terrain like agricultural, um, chemical, industrial zones. So we have to connect nature together and allow this flow of movement to happen again. 
You alluded in your last response to how children living in urban settings can also contribute to wilding. So what are some of the next steps? And I'm talking children and parents and educators. What steps can they take from your book when we went wild and to spread the message of wilding? I think a lot of it, as I sort of mentioned, is, is, is about, you know, getting messy. And I think children are fantastically good at that. They don't, they don't worry about the mud and the dirt and the, you know, if you think of, in a way, I think children are natural rewilders. Um, you know, if you think back, I don't know, you know, what kind of childhood you had, but I had a very kind of feral childhood. <laughs> I'm old enough to have lived in a time when parents really weren't um, concerned about watching their children all the time. And we were allowed to go off for, you know, all day on our bikes and cycle off into the countryside and make dens and swim, you know, completely unsupervised. It was, you know, freedom that we, we just don't allow our children these days. And, um, but if you, you know, do watch children in a natural setting, the place that they, small children, the place that they will gravitate towards is the thickest, densest, scrubbiest bit of land. And that's where they want to make a den. It's a kind of instinct, you know, you want to be hidden. You want that joy of hiding from the adults and creating this amazing little nest for yourself that only you can get into. And, and so I think that we just have to think a bit more like children. Um, you know, where is good habitat? You know, does it matter if we, ha we don't have linear edges in our, in our gardens? If we, you know, if, if the weeds start sprouting up um, it's also, I think, trying to mimic thinking of yourself as a free roaming animal. So what do you what are you actually doing in your garden when you're when you're um, putting in your trowel and digging over the earth? You're actually being the snout of a of a pig or a wild boar. That's what's happening in the wild. And that's why the robins and the little birds will follow your trowel, because you're unearthing all these lovely invertebrates and rhizomes and worms for them to eat. Tasty treats. Yeah. And so when you're pruning your rose bush, what are you doing? Well, actually, you're being the mouth of a wild horse or an aurochs or a bison, because what the rose bush is doing is it's responding to browsing. That's why they can survive so well when you when you clip them back and what they actually do is they're sending out defense mechanisms so they're getting bushier and and denser and they're throwing out more flowers in a kind of desperate attempt to you know what they might they think might be a last ditch attempt to flower so we're actually unconsciously we're using that response mechanism in a in a bush um, to browsing and there's a very interesting study that's shown that actually if you if you paint the the cut off ends of your rose bush with horse spit or or cow spit, it actually increases that reaction in the bush even more. That shrub will get even even denser, even bushier and even more flowers and more thorns because it's 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 trying to protect itself from what it perceives to be um, a, a megafauna, a, a, a large herbivore. It would be so interesting I think to be we, a fly on the wall of that experiment. Yeah, I think you, you know, you sort of, you say exactly that. <laughs> but I think, um, so I think it's, 
it's you know it's it's about putting yourself in the mind of nature and what would nature be doing in this garden to to benefit biodiversity the most and that would be a, a lot of it would be getting messier it would be creating dynamism it would certainly certainly you continue pruning um to imitate the browsers but also i think you'd be allowing your boom and bust systems to happen so when you have your cabbage white butterfly laying its eggs on your um, cabbages and your its caterpillars come out and eat eat your cabbages instead of spraying those um, caterpillars off or even using biological uh, means of getting rid of them like nematodes um, or other other predators you just wait for the natural predators to come and that may mean sacrificing your cabbages for a year or two but sooner or later something some predator is going to recognize this wonderful abundance of caterpillars and is going to come in and get rid of them for you and so then you'll you'll be able to do it without without even you know lifting a finger nature will start if you give it a chance if you give it time nature will start working out how to get rid of those those boom scenarios of pests in your garden yeah i imagine just half of the battle is being patient. We love our instant gratification. We love things today and having to wait a year, a year and a half for a natural pest to come in has got to be very hard for some people. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're not patient. And, and also I think we feel bad if we're not doing something. You know, often helping nature is about doing less rather than more. And we instinctively i think we're workaholics you know we 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 feel like we need to be giving nature a hand all the time and and actually doing less is often more um you know just take the example of you know if you if you have a big yard that where you have a dead shrub um and you 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 can you've got the space to allow it to stay then let it stay because dead wood is actually hugely important um, habitat for creatures, but it's also very good fertilizer eventually, leaving the dead branches on, on the ground and that kind of thing. So it, it is about, um, yeah, it's, a, it's about mess and untidiness and changing our control freakery. I was gonna say, I feel like the key word there is control. It's hard to <laughs> yes. relinquish that control. Issy, before we wrap up our time together, which has been just, of course, educational and astounding all at once, I want to ask you one final question that I ask everybody who joins me on the podcast. What makes you love a book? What draws you to a book? What pulls you in? Gosh, that's a difficult one. I think a, a children's book, um, you know, I think it, it, it obviously it has to have a story it has to have a compelling story and something I think that as a reader adult or child you can identify with um, I think I love a story that overcomes adversity or a problem or finds an interesting unexpected solution somehow um, but I think it's it's also got to be true in a, in a sense it's got to have an authenticity about it i i i feel you know there's a lot of stories um and i suppose i loved them when i was a child i have to say you know orlando the cat or baba the elephant but 
I think now with my rewilding hat on, I've moved past that sort of anthropomorphizing of, of animals so much. And I don't think you really need to do it. I think um, children already have such a, uh, a sort of innate connection with animals. We don't have to invest them with human qualities so much. Um, I think that, you know, children have what the wonderful American biologist E.O. Wilson calls biophilia, you know, that they just love living things. And so I think anything that piques your interest about a species other than your own, how it performs, what it does, and how different it is to you, but also how similar um, is, is always intriguing. And I don't think we have to go down the fantasy route to get there. I think for me now, it's much more interesting having those stories actually grounded in nature. Perfect response. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Issy. This has been, like I said, educational and I feel like I have to go back and do a million things in my backyard, which I don't own. <laughs> or not. <laughs> or not. <laughs> oh, no, great, Well, Very nice to talk to you too. Thank you so much for listening to our chat with Isabella Tree. When We Went Wild is available online and in bookstores and libraries worldwide. We'd love to see you subscribe to Crido Kids Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find all available episodes at anchor.fm slash Cast. And hey, if you're enjoying Crido Kids Cast, we'd be grateful if you left a review so others can hear about it too. Special thanks to Scott Holmes for our theme music, Steve Roth for his promotional vocal stylings, Isabella Tree for stopping by to talk to us, and of course you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.